You're listening to audio from Memphis Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit memphiscc.info. Well, if you haven't already, find Genesis chapter 12, where today we pick back up where we left off last week. Last week, we discovered that there is one God. He is the creator of all things, that he created something out of nothing when he fashioned this world, the heavens and the earth, all of the billions of galaxies, every living creature. We got our beginning from him. We recognize that man fell away from God when man did what? When man sinned, when man chose to go outside of God's plan for his life. We see that the world took a downward spiral from that very first decision that Adam and Eve made in the garden. And things got so bad, there was a worldwide flood. God told a man named Noah, I want you to build an ark. I'm going to bring to you two of every kind, save you and your family. And after this worldwide catastrophic flood, they got off of the boat and that heart of sin continued. God gave us an indication when he made a promise in the book of Genesis when he took that first animal and crucified it, took the skin of that animal to cover up Adam and Eve's nakedness, and took the blood of that animal to cover their sin. It was the promise that he would send a savior a savior that would take on our sin, whose very flesh and blood would be given for us that we might be covered, our sinfulness might be covered, that we could be restored to that perfect relationship with God. Now here in Genesis chapter 12, we see that the next step that God takes in redeeming, reclaiming you and I, his people, is to build a nation. A nation that would learn to be obedient and to follow him. And when they did, there would be blessing. And when they didn't, well, sin would continue to have its way. And what does sin always bring? Sin always brings death. It brings destruction. In Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, we read how God chose to form this nation. Then the Lord had said to Abram, leave your country your people, your father's household, go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Boy, there's a common theme here and that's blessing, right? I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. God's choice for building and populating this new nation is a man named Abram and his wife, Sarai. Now you and I know them by the name that God gave them a little bit later, around chapter 19 or so, and that is Abraham and Sarah. And so I'll try to refer to them as Abraham and Sarah throughout the rest of the morning. Now flip over to Genesis 15 verse 5. God takes Abraham outside, and this is perhaps one of the most memorable moments that we have with Abraham. He takes Abraham outside and he says, look up at the stars. Look up at the stars, and if indeed you can count them, Abraham, so shall your offspring be. Three promises that God makes to Abraham. First, 
is I'm going to give you a land. You're going to leave what's familiar to you, and I'm going to give you a land. Now, one of the things that we find out real quick is that he's not specific yet with Abraham about where this land is at. He just says, I'm going to give you a land. And the second thing, the second thing that he promises, God promises Abraham, is I'm going to make you a father. I'm going to make you a father and not just a daddy of a child of your own, but I'm going to make your offspring so many that you're going to form this nation, you and your wife, Sarah. Now, that's a big family. I used to think nine was a big family, but this is a big family he's talking about. And third, and most importantly, what both of these promises are leading up to is that third promise that God is going to bless everyone who lives everyone who lives through this nation, through this people, through this man and his obedience by the name of Abraham. Now, sounds like a great plan, but there's a problem, at least from my perspective, and that is that Abraham and Sarah are 75 and 65. Now, her ability to have children, if you read on as you have in the next couple of weeks, you're going to see that there are other people 65 years old that have a child, but she is on the far end of her childbearing years. And Abraham, he's kind of like me. I got a late start. They'll have to get him out of the nursing home to see the great-grandchildren, right? That's one problem. The second problem is that they haven't had children yet because of Sarah's infertility. For whatever reason, she has not been able to bear children. Her womb is closed. But on top of that, what you don't see here, you find later when we get to the book of Joshua, chapter 24, verse 2, and that is that Abraham's father, a guy by the name of Terah, T-E-R-E-H or A-H, is not only an idol worshiper, but he's an idol maker. Abraham's family, no wonder God asked him to leave his family and all that was familiar because Abraham's father was about as far removed from God as you can be. And you can imagine, some of you, you don't have to imagine very hard, you know what that's like to live in a house where God is not first, where there are other idols, whether it's a drink, whether it's a job, whether it's a sport, whether it's yourself. There are other idols that have taken God's place. Why would God choose these two? I would have chosen the young newlywed couple, right? Full of life and ready to go. But God chose Abraham and Sarah. Why? Because we see this happening over and over again. Abraham was old. Moses, who we'll read about in a few weeks, he couldn't speak very well. Rahab, she was immoral. Remember Rahab the prostitute? Remember Elijah and his depression, Naomi, who was a widow living in a God-forsaken land, Mary, the mother of Jesus, was a poor teenage girl, John the Baptist, he was a wild man out eating locusts and living in the jungle, Peter, he was impulsive, Martha, all she did was worry, the Samaritan woman, right, who went home and told everyone about this man who told, told her everything about herself, she had however many failed marriages, Thomas had his doubts. Paul, he was a rascal, not to mention his poor health. 
And the list goes on and on of the people that God would reveal his purpose, his plan, and his grace to. All imperfect people, all the way to you and me. And this is the first thing that we discover today about God and these promises that he makes. And that is God makes promises to you and me. He makes promises to you and me. And he reveals his purpose, his plan, and his grace by keeping those promises. You see, while we look at these promises so individually, and many of them you can, it's all about us and what we get. The reality is, is that every one of these promises are there to do what? To glorify God, to show us his character, his nature, who he is. And so God makes promises to you and me, and then he reveals these things about himself by the way that he keeps these promises and the journey that we're on through all of that. And as part of the promise, God asked Abraham and Sarah to pack up and move. It's the first thing that he says as part of promise number one. I'm going to give you land, but guess what? You're going to have to leave what's familiar to you right now. And their response is in verse four there of chapter 12. It says, so Abraham left. Abraham left. Not a lot of questions, no objections, but he takes his wife and their two walkers and they leave. They head out. Hebrews 11 summarizes it this way. Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, right? He doesn't know for sure where he's going. It's not an immediate gift that he gets. When called to go to a place he'd later receive as his inheritance, he obeyed and went, even though he didn't know where he was going. It's the definition of faith. Faith, believing that God will do what he's promised, even though we can't see it at the moment. Is that not what faith is all about? It's certainly not blind faith. Because what? We have this promise in front of us. And faith means taking God at his word. And that's why it's so important today to understand that God is a promise keeper. But we take him at his word, even though we don't know exactly how it's going to work out. Now, by verse 10, by verse 10, we find out that there's a famine in the land that Abraham has moved his family to. And so he goes down to Egypt to live for a while. Now, there's something here that I need to let you know about faith. And that is faith always requires that I let go in order that I can take hold of what's promised. Faith always requires us to let go of something. Let go of control. Let go of some of the other choices that we find easier to make choices that we've made in the past that we would like to continue making today. Sometimes it's friendships. Sometimes it's relationships with other people. Sometimes it's a lifestyle, a comfort zone, doing things our own way. But faith always requires that I let go in order that I can take hold of what has promised. And so Abraham and Sarah, they head out, they're on their way. 
they run into a famine. And famine is a common theme throughout the Old Testament. Famine is often used by God to get the attention of his people. And in this case, what happens with this famine is Abraham does something that we see men doing in the Old Testament. And that is, instead of trusting God in that famine, what's he do? He goes to the place where there isn't a famine. He goes to Egypt to live for a while. And I saw several questions pop up on the F-260 app this week about this very next move. And you know what that move is, right? Abraham and his, what the Bible says, he he had a a very good-looking 65-year-old, right? No wrinkles, apparently. Good form. And so they're on their way. They go to Egypt. And the very first thing that he says to Sarah is, hey, Sarah, while we're here, I want you to pretend that, that you're my sister, Nobody needs to know we're married. And you're like, what an idiot. You're right. He's an idiot. (laughs) Abraham, this dude that ended up with such great faith, he has not much faith right now because he's protecting his own hide. She's so good looking that he knows these people in Egypt and he knows that if he goes there with a good looking woman, that they are going to take her from him and do away with him. And so he says, I I want you to pretend that you're my sister. I want you to move in with Pharaoh and keep Pharaoh happy. Obviously, Abram learned this move from his idol-worshiping dad. We see the chain that he has yet to break with his past. Verse 17 tells us that God inflicted disease on Pharaoh and his household for bringing a married woman into his bed. And you're like, well, Pharaoh's not even a believer. Why would God do that? You need to understand something. God's God and he's going to do whatever he chooses and wrong is wrong. No matter who you are, whether you acknowledge God or not, you will receive the punishment for doing wrong. It's just a matter of when God will choose for you to see his wrath. And that's what he pours out on Pharaoh. And Pharaoh can't get Sarah out of his house fast enough. In fact, he goes to Abraham and says, why would you do this to me? I was afraid. Get out of here, Abraham, and take your wife with you. But notice that he takes with him sheep, cattle, servants, donkeys, more servants, and camels. God provides for Abraham, even though his faith is about this big. Why? Because God's promise stands even when our faithfulness doesn't. Even when you and I are not faithful to God, God's promise is still intact. Now, another question that came up this week, I'm just going to touch on for just a second, and that's why does God allow multiple wives in the Old Testament? Why does it even appear that he enables this? Just because men chose multiple wives and did foolish things like Abraham does, that does not mean that God condones it. That does not mean that they were living in the favor of God any more than the foolish things that you and I do today that try to redefine God's plan for marriage. God's plan from the very beginning, which is affirmed, I think, in Deuteronomy, which is affirmed later in the New Testament, is between one man and one woman. 
And so, yes, polygamy existed. Yes, there are some crazy people out west who think they need more than one wife, too. I don't know why anybody would think that. Even though Abraham demonstrates that he's far from ready to lead a nation, to even be a dad himself, God still keeps his promise. And look what God's doing. He's already building what's necessary for this nation. It's going to take servants. It's going to take sheep. It's going to take camels. It's going to take all of these things. And so even through Abraham's mistake, God provides. And how often has God done the same? For you and me when we have lacked faith. Well, in chapters 13 and 14, some of these weren't part of the required reading, but hopefully you're like me and you're trying to go through as much of God's word as you can, even though the app uh, just takes you through some specific sections. But in chapters 13, there's some important stuff there because we see God continue to bless Abraham. God blesses him so much. Remember, Abraham took his nephew Lot with him on this journey. He blesses Lot so much that they have so many things that the land can't sustain them. And so they go separate directions, and that's important a little bit later in the story. When Lot is taken captive by four kings who got together and went against him, and so Abraham had to go and rescue Lot. What's God doing there? God is strengthening Abraham. If Abraham's going to be the father of this great nation, that means he's going to have to make some tough leadership choices. There's going to have to be some land that's taken. There's going to have to be some kings, some battles that are fought. But it's in chapter 14. I want to draw your attention to chapter 14 when we're introduced to King Melchizedek. It's the only king that served as a king and as a priest of God. And it is here that Melchizedek blessed Abraham. Now, why Melchizedek? I just want you to underline that, circle that, because we're going to come back to that in a thousand, couple thousand years when we're in the New Testament. And we meet Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ in the book of Hebrews, who becomes our great high priest in the order of the priest Melchizedek, all right? So it's just a connection we'll make later. In chapter 15, verse 1, we go back to this appearance that God has with Abraham when he says, do not be afraid, Abraham. I am your shield, your very great reward. I want you to listen to what God is saying here because I've discovered this reality myself as have many of you in trusting God's promises. And that is fear. Fear is a natural response to stepping out of our comfort zone. Fear comes with letting go. Even when you're letting go of things that really need to be let go of, there's fear because when we let go of something, we're grabbing hold of something new and, and new scary. But fear is a natural response to stepping out of our comfort zone in pursuit of God, but he protects he develops and he rewards us as we do. And I want to tell you what I believe the greatest reward that God gives us on this earth is. There's a lot of things that God gives us, but the greatest reward that he gives us when in fear we continue, when in fear we are faithful, when in fear we lean into him. You know what that is, the greatest reward? It says right here, 
God says, I am your greatest reward. What's he mean by that? Well, there's a couple things that I think he means by that. One is that one day we're going to stand face to face with God. And what a reward that will be to see him there. But let me tell you something else. We see him right now on this planet in our very lives when we in faith persevere. When we in faith, when we are afraid, when we are letting go of things, or when we are grabbing hold of a promise of God, that is when we see him so, so clearly. It's why you hear people who have gone through great trial in their life say, I wouldn't trade my life for anything. Why? Because we have walked with God in ways that sometimes we don't have the opportunity to here on earth, but because of the hardship or because of the trial, we get to walk with him, right, Eileen? I know that you've seen him and what a great reward he is. There's no better reward than that. It's what you read in chapter 42 this week about Job. Job says in chapter 42, remember Job, chapter one and two at the first of the week, the most righteous man who ever lived, that got tested as we're gonna look at next week as we talk about how God allows tests in our lives. He was tested by Satan. He lost everything, his children, his house collapsed on him when they were partying. Lost all of his livestock, all of his wealth, everything except for his nagging wife, he was stuck with her. But Job chapter 42, verses 2 and 5, Job says these words, and they, I have hung on to these words, my friends. It says, my ears had heard of you. This is Job saying, God, I, 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 even though he's the most righteous man that lived, he now looks at his life after all this has happened with God, and he's like, I barely knew you. <laughs> I barely knew you then. My ears had heard of you, but now, after I've lost it all, after you've restored it all, now my eyes have seen you. That's that great reward. He said in verse two, I know that you, God, can do all things. How do you know that? By walking through the desert, by walking through those times where it's rotten. I know that you can do all things and that no plan of yours can be thwarted. God appears to Abraham after he's been given this land and he says, okay, Abraham, it's time we started working on promise number two, you becoming the father of this great nation. And Abraham says to God in verse two of chapter 15, God, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is a servant. <clears throat> A servant from Damascus, Eliezer, what a name. After all that Abraham has witnessed, and he says, how are you going to make me into a great nation, seeing as how I have no children of my own? Verse 4, God's response. Then the word of the Lord came to Abraham. This man, this servant will not be your heir but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. That's when he took him outside and said, look up at the heavens and count the stars. If indeed you can count them, so shall your offspring be. This is the second observation about God as a promise keeper. And that is God is always very clear. 
He is always very clear in the language he uses to express his promises. You look at the promises of God and you look at his character and there should be no question as to the promise God's making you. Now the problem is and the reason why so many of us get disillusioned feeling as if God has let us down. How many times have we been in the depth of a situation down in the valley and we're like, why would God allow this to happen to me? And we want to be nice to each other as Christians and say, oh, you know, everybody asked that question. But friends, we shouldn't be asking that question, especially when God never promised that that wouldn't happen to us especially when we're called to share in the sufferings of Christ, especially when as Christians we have certain promises that we can hold on to no matter what Satan, no matter what this world, no matter what the consequences of our choices bring. The last thing that we should do is be asking God why he did something that he never promised that he wouldn't do. We've got to know his promises is what I'm saying. You need to know his promises. And the only way to know his promises is to do what? To read his word. To find out what his promises are. And the other reason we get disillusioned is that if we do know his promises, we get torqued because he doesn't fulfill his promises in the manner in which we want him to fulfill his promises. This is where Abraham and Sarah find themselves. All this time, they've been traveling under this promise. God's been providing livestock. He's been providing servants. But they've been trying to have a baby. And for 10 years, they've been waiting. Now, 10 years is a long time, and some of you know what that feels like. In fact, having experienced a little bit of that in my past, I can tell you this. I don't know of very many other things that will make a man or a woman more desperate, <laughs> question more than what infertility does, even for the strongest in their faith. Here they are 10 years or so beyond the promise and they're waiting. Chapter 16, verse 1. Now Sarah, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian maidservant named Hagar. The name should have been a clue. Named Hagar. So she said to Abraham, the Lord has kept me from having children. I want you to underline that. The Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my maidservant, Hagar. Perhaps I, I want you to underline, underline I, perhaps I, can build a family through her, and then foolish Abraham, hardening of the arteries, I wish this were the case, but it wasn't. Abraham agreed to what Sarah said. The Lord has kept me from having. Now listen, I think she was on the right track when she said that. I think it was true. I think God had kept her from having children. And you're like, why? Well, he never promised children until this promise, but he didn't tell them when 
He said, you will be a father. Take me at my word. And right here we find what you and I deal with all the time, and that is, well, he's not moving fast enough. That answer doesn't satisfy me. Even though children are a blessing from God, a reward, she is thinking correctly that God has kept her from having a child, and yet she thinks that she's going to step into his place and decide that she's going to have... That's one for you to think about, isn't it? In those times in your life when you want something so bad, so bad, and you know what God's promise is for your life, but yet... Ah, maybe he's not moving fast enough. Maybe he, maybe he put Hagar there for this purpose. I, I don't think so. It's outside of his marriage. God created marriage between one man and one woman. Anyway, she takes hands into her, her actions into her own hands and go sleep with my maid servant. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Who was it that was going to make Abraham into the father of a great nation? Was it her? No, it was God. God said, I will. Last week, I had the opportunity to speak in the lobby after service to an 84-year-old man. Whenever an 84-year-old man talks to you, I, I just stop and I listen and I take it in. And, and this old guy, he shared with me his testimony, basically. But he looked me right in the eye and he said, I was 43 when I gave my life to Jesus Christ. He walked out of service so excited, having seen the baptism, having seen so many come up for prayer. And so out there, he started telling me a story. I was 43 when I gave my life to Jesus. He said, I was at the hospital with my wife. But after that day of me giving my life to Jesus Christ, things got worse. I thought they were supposed to get better, but things got worse, he said. He said, my wife was diagnosed with cancer. We had a little girl and I didn't know what I was gonna do to finish raising her. And he looked me in the eye and he said, Satan sure tried to get me to come back to him, but I stayed and I'm glad I did. That little girl is with him now is his probably 60 year old plus daughter bringing him to church every week, faithful. Sarah wasn't happy with God's timeline. She took things in her own hands, and as you read this week, it created quite, quite a mess. But God didn't waver in his promise, and God doesn't waver when you and I sometimes bring consequences into our life that are life-altering. By his wonderful grace, he keeps his promise. Chapter 17. When Abraham was 99 years old, God again speaks to Abraham and in verse 21 says, by this time next year, I love it, just got to wait one more year. (laughs) He went from 75 to 99 and he still got to wait another year. By this time next year, Sarah will bear you a son named Isaac. And in chapter 21, verse 1, we read, sure enough, God kept his promise. Now the Lord, the Lord was gracious to Sarah and he was. As he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised, Sarah became pregnant 
bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the very time God had promised him. And that brings us to promise number three. And that is that all people, all people, everyone who lives will be blessed through Abraham. And this is where we finish up our time together. Don't put your Bible away. We've got one more place to go. Dan and the crew's going to come and get themselves ready so there's not a distraction later. But I want you to go back with me to Genesis chapter 15. And I want us to look in a little bit more detail how God took Abraham outside and he showed him the stars, right? And he said, look up and count the stars. And if indeed you can count them, so shall your offspring be. Was he saying to Abraham, literally, Abraham, you're going to have millions and millions of children? He was going to have several. But what he's saying to Abraham through this promise is, look, this promise goes way beyond you. (laughs) This promise has a lot to do with your faithfulness, Abraham. For all people to be blessed through you, trust me, Abraham, this promise I make to you today is far-reaching. Your decision to live in this promise impacts countless lives yet to come. You see, the reach, the reach of God's promises is beyond us. It's beyond us. It's what I said when we started this morning. While we want to take these promises so personal, it's just for me, it's just for my life. These promises extend beyond us. When in faith, we walk through the pieces with him. Now that word pieces. In verse 9, God has Abraham bring him a heifer, a goat, a ram, along with a dove and pigeon. Abraham does something strange. He cuts the larger animals, the heifer, goat, ram, in half, and he lays those halves opposite each other. They look like a butcher's shop, right? Someone said, why didn't he cut the uh, pigeons and birds in half? Well, they were too small, I guess. I don't know. He couldn't see to cut something that small. And then it says that he speaks to Abraham in a vision is he gives Abraham a glimpse of what's ahead for this nation. He gives him a little sneak peek preview about the 400 years that they would be enslaved in where? Egypt, the place that Abraham had checked out. How they're going to be enslaved, but that how a savior would come for them through Moses and would lead them out of slavery all of which was a foreshadow of what God, of course, would do through Jesus Christ. Not freeing us from slavery like they were enslaved, but slavery of our sin, right? Enslaved to sin is what we're enslaved to. Self. And that's what God would send Jesus Christ to do, to come and free us. And all of this was a foreshadow. And in verse 17, it says, when the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared, this represented God, and passed between the pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham and said to your descendants, I will give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river of Euphrates and all of these other boundary marks. But here's what I want you to see, two things. One, there's a pattern. 
there's a pattern whenever God made a covenant with one of his people in the Bible. And that pattern is, I, I did this study 10 years ago, Bill, and I'm like, I studied covenants, and it was the most boring study ever. But it came in so handy this week as I saw this. But when God would make a covenant with someone, they would do just that. They would take a sacrifice, they would cut it in half, and they would lay the two pieces, one on each side, and then the two people entering into the covenant, in this case, God and Abraham, they would walk through the pieces, right, right through the middle of them, and what did that signify? It signified that if one or the other broke their end of the deal. Remember when we're married and we make that commitment, tell death, do us part. God's covenants are only broken or could only be broken when a person dies, beginning with the covenant of marriage. And so when you're walking through these pieces, you're saying, if I break this covenant, I, may I be like one of these pieces, dead meat, okay? So, so you get a little glimpse there of what's coming. This symbolized not only the serious of the commitment, but it indicated what verse 12 is about to tell us. And that is the most remarkable thing about the way God promises things to us is that he holds the entirety of the covenant himself. You're like, well, Abraham was there. Yes, he was there. But God took full responsibility for that covenant. How do I know that? Well, look at verse 12. What does it say that God did with Abraham? right before they walked through the pieces there. It said he caused Abraham to go into a deep sleep. <laughs> and that same word is used one other time in Genesis, and that's back at the beginning when God put Adam asleep to take the rib from him. So Abraham was completely asleep. God made it so, so that he could take the entire weight of this covenant on himself. And this is the same picture of where all of this is leading us as we continue to read and move through God's word this year. It's the same thing that happened to us and for us in the promise he made through Jesus Christ. We get his salvation. We get eternity with him, forgiveness of sins, a right relationship with God. And the miracle is, is that God would do all the work himself in keeping his promise. Remember when Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, through me, through the peace of the covenant, Jesus' body broken for us. God carried the weight of it all. And you say, so what's my responsibility in this covenant, in this promise? It's to faithfully trust his promise. It's to walk with him. It is to be obedient to him out of gratefulness for what he's done. 
I want us to finish out our time together this way. Each week we're going to finish in a special way. And and in order to do this, I need you to stand with me. You can set your Bible down and your notes and your phone. I just want you to repeat a couple phrases after me if, if you truly feel this way. It's kind of your opportunity to say something while it's on your mind. I'm just going to suggest something. The first is a a statement of gratitude. You know, God, God, I'm thankful. God, thank you for the promise of forgiveness of my sins through Jesus Christ. It's up there for you to read. If you want to make it your own, you can adjust a little bit. But say it with me. God, thank you for the promise of forgiveness of my sins through Jesus Christ. Do you recognize the significance of that promise that you will see Jesus, that you will see God, that he is your great reward because of this promise that he carried the weight of? Thank you for carrying the entire weight of the promise when you died for me at Calvary. Thank him for that. God, thank you for carrying the entire weight of the promise when you died for me at Calvary. Now, this third statement is only for you. It's only for you who want to receive the promise through baptism. This isn't a raise your hand and be saved moment. This is part of the entire process of salvation, and that is to simply say to God, God, I want you as Savior and Lord of my life. Now, now many of you have made that profession already. But today, if you make that profession and you haven't been baptized, you need to come and you need to put this whole package together. You need to stand right here with me and you need to say before these witnesses, I believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And I accept him as my Savior, but also Lord of my life. I'm going to follow him. I'm going to be obedient to him. I'm going to be grateful to him. And so be careful when you make this statement because it's a life-changing statement. And it puts you on the receiving end of the greatest promise that's ever been made. Forgiveness of sins the gift of the Holy Spirit that indwells us and seals us for the day that we stand before our reward in heaven with God. If you want to make that statement this morning, then you come and you receive that free gift of salvation. If you're here this weekend, as many were last night and last weekend, and you want someone to pray with you, you've really had trouble grasping God's promise in a certain area of your life. Perhaps over and over again, you've just fallen short of holding on to that promise. Instead, you, you let go of it and you, you step, kept going back to the same idol or to the same problem over and over again. We'd love to pray with you. Prayer changes things. It changes us. Perhaps you're here today and you've been walking alone in God's promise. And his intention was not for you to do that. His intention for you was to do that surrounded by other believers, to be part of a church family. And yes, it's hard being part of a church family. There's people you're not going to like, but there's going to be a lot more that you love. 
But that's all part of what God does to his church is he helps grow us up. He helps us to have situations where we lean into him and we trust the promise that he made, that he's always with us, that he'll never forsake us. You come as we sing this next song, a song about that amazing grace that God has for our lives.